The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome. to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I have the pleasure of speaking with Nikki Lavoie. Did I say that right, Nikki? Yes, one of the two correct ways. There's always, there's always a backup option, so well done. I'm trying the French option. So, Nikki is the CEO and founder of MindSpark Research International. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're, the time difference, you're closing up shop there. Well, not yet. It's still afternoon for you. Yeah, it's afternoon. It's totally fine. It's like the perfect time to just have a cup of tea and, and a good conversation. Very cool. So Nikki, tell me a little bit about yourself, what your company does and, and kind of what your passion is. I was working in market research. I actually did a, a little bit of both qual and quant back in the early days and ended up um, specializing in qual and worked in the States for about five years before I moved over to Paris in 2000 and, oh goodness, 2011 now, I guess is when I moved over and then worked for a French agency here for a couple of years, also doing some qual and some other things and then ended up deciding to launch MindSpark. So MindSpark, we have kind of two different niches, which, you know, work together really well for us. One is that we focus on sort of international qual, which is really fun and interesting and happens to work out really well, possibly because it's being run by someone with an understanding of the North American expectations around speed and reactivity, but still being based in Europe, where those expectations are not necessarily the same. Got it. So it tends to be kind of helpful. And then our other specialty is we've been doing a lot more focusing on UX research. So not exclusively into UX yet, but we're, we're definitely doing a ton more UX research than we have been in the, in the first couple of years of of starting up. So heading in that direction. That's exciting. And did you always want to live in Europe or specifically Paris? Okay, that's a funny question. Actually, when I was in high school, I remember that I had this phone conversation with my best friend at the time. And we were talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up, you know, standard teen talk. And I remember that I was saying, I have no idea what I want to do. Because a lot of my friends knew they said, Oh, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be this, or I want to be that. And I said, I don't really care what I do. I want something where I can travel around the world. And I was trying to think as a, I don't know, 14 year old, what my options were that would lead me to such a job. And back then, I actually thought I was going to be a linguist because I did take French in in school and I had some French family roots. But I never really assumed I was going to live in Paris. I just thought I wanted to travel a lot. And then, yeah, skip ahead many years later, I got offered a job in Paris. And surprisingly, I actually almost said no. And then somewhere that little phone conversation came back to me and I was like, your 15-year-old self would be furious if you said no to this job. <laughs> so yeah, here I am. That's so cool. Well, at least you knew you wanted to travel, right? Yeah. Better than most people know. 
at 15. So yeah, even more funny, my, my first trip abroad, I'm sure you know how it goes for a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans, because our, you know, the states are so big and so vast that there's so many places we can go and see without having to leave our own country. And my first trip outside of the US, which was a major deal, I had to save up for a long time. And I asked my friends and family to contribute as Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and all that. My first trip out of the US was actually to Paris when I was 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it made an impression. Yeah, actually, I didn't like it. <laughs> I'm sorry, you didn't like it? No, I was like, it's always raining. The people are grumpy. It was hard to get a good cheeseburger. That was back before I was a vegetarian. That's so funny. And all of those things are still true. The cheeseburger thing I hear is a little bit easier now from my meat-eating friends. No, but now I love Paris for lots of other reasons. But yeah, I came back from that trip being like, really, Nikki? Do you still want to travel? <laughs> so what made you decide to start MindSpark? What was the impetus to doing that? Oh, man. Total honesty here. It was necessity. I had sort of outgrown my previous job. I felt like I was ready to move on to new things. But being an American based over here meant that my options were super limited because it's really difficult to get a job, not just because, of course, as you can imagine, in a lot of places, culturally, it's difficult as a foreigner to kind of break into countries, you know, local local companies. But aside from that, employers would have needed to sponsor me, would have needed to sponsor my visa. And that was just really, really tricky at the time. So my choices were go back to the States and get a job there, which I knew would have been relatively easy, or stay and kind of start my own thing. And I actually started my own thing thinking that I was going to be a freelancer until I found a job. I was like, I'll just, you know, pick up things here and there, whatever I can just to pay the bills. And all the while, I'll keep looking for a gig. And five, actually five years yesterday (laughs) is when MindSpark was registered. Yeah. So five years ago, I guess I just decided, well, I'm getting bigger and bigger projects and things that I can't necessarily just do by myself. So I could I could keep trying to do it by myself or I could build something bigger than me. So yeah, it started from necessity and then built into something else. So why qualitative research? What really drove you or attracted you to qualitative research? Oh, that's where all the good stuff is. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> like I said, I did, I did qual and quant both at the beginning. And I actually really loved working on the quant side. There's something really like, I don't know, there's something really nice and, and calming about like going through a data set and, you know, building cross tabs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah there's, yeah, there's something really nice about that. But I think for me personally, I mean, whenever I worked on quantitative research or quantitative studies, I always was fascinated by things that I saw in the data and it always left me with more questions. So while, you know, the quantitative stuff for me at the time, you know, felt very informative, it always was like, okay, but then what, what about this? And what about that? And, and I think on qualitative, it's not to say that it answers every single question you could possibly have, but there's something, you know, a little bit more immersive about it that feels a little bit more, at least for me personally, it feels a little bit more fulfilling and leaves me less with a like a remaining little appetite. It's almost like when I did quant, I still needed a snack after. And when I do quant, right. I feel nice and nice and full. Well, and I would imagine the human connections also satisfying right? yeah. being in a room with people and, and really having a deep conversation about a research topic is fulfilling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that's 100% the reason why. It's just, I think that I happen to just be the type of person that I really enjoy, you know, connecting with people on whatever level. And 
and learning about them and to be able to do that in a way that is both useful for a client, but also useful for the person I'm connecting to, because obviously in an ideal world, I'm, I'm using what I'm learning about them to help better their, their life or their situation in some way. So I think that's also really nice. I think that the quote you shared with me before was, heartbeats before spreadsheets. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where, and, and we've all heard this, right? I mean, you can see there's plenty of examples out there where you, you hear statistics about, I don't know, X thousands of children are affected by something. But if you see one story, if you meet one of those children, just one, it has such a different impact on you than, you know, pouring over numbers. So numbers are still important, not knocking quant. <laughs> but sure. for me personally, it's just a lot more satisfying to do the other side of things. Very cool. And I, I I know when you're in front of people and you're doing research, it's hard sometimes not to get emotionally connected with some of the people that you're, you interview or you talk to and, you know, things can get emotional. Do you have any stories that you can share that have really kind of profoundly impacted you in terms of the work that you're doing and, and connecting with different respondents? Sure. Or participants, I should say, right? I just say people. I mean, and just to say first and foremost is that I know that there are obviously some moments where it's, it's super important not to be leading. In, in all of research, that's a very important aspect of things. But on the other hand, this whole, you know, don't connect with people and don't get emotionally involved. I, I don't believe in that. <laughs> I don't personally function like that as a researcher because people can feel that, I think, when you're holding back from them and then they hold back from you. But yeah, so in, in terms of stories, there's this woman. So actually, I was doing a ton of, I was just traveling on the road constantly back when I was still working in the States. And we were doing a lot of research with women who they were target clients for a fashion designer for a fashion brand. It was a really cool project where we went into their homes and we met with them face to face and we saw their wardrobes and it was, you know, sort of this very intimate. It was just me. So it wasn't a client team and it was just me and I was recording things, you know, that they felt comfortable with me recording, but it wasn't a team of, you know, 10 clients and all this kind of stuff. And just sitting down with them like you would a, a girlfriend that you've known for a long time yeah. and going through their wardrobe. And so they were telling me, oh, I, I love this because it reminds me of this event in my life or I hate this, someone gave it to me and I don't feel comfortable throwing it away so I keep it, but I never wear it. And the goal of the study was kind of to to understand what were the types of you know clothing items that made women feel powerful, what made them you know feel good about themselves, so that this particular fashion designer could leverage that and, and make more of those you know really positive and inspiring pieces. And so the second part of the the project was that then we would go into a store and we would actually look at some existing stuff that was for sale in a shop. And I remember this one woman, she found this sort of business suit that had a leopard print motif on the inside. So one of the details was sort of leopard print. And she was saying to me, this is the kind of thing that I love, but I could never wear it. And I said, you know, why couldn't you wear it? And she said, oh, because, you know, it's just too, it's too bold. Right. And I just said, why don't, why don't you just try it on? And she tried it on. And of course, she loved it. She ended up buying it, which is, by the way, not part of the research. Right. You know, I had I was not commissioned to try and convince anyone to, to buy something that day. And anyway, she and I stayed in touch, which again, is one of the things that they say, well, you shouldn't be connected to someone. But she said, Oh, this interview was so great. I really just had such a great time. Do you mind if I just have your email address and say hi every now and then? And I said, Absolutely. And um, she wrote to me maybe a year later saying that that visit with me and that exploration on her behalf of looking into a piece of clothing that she wouldn't have otherwise purchased led her to start her own business on the side. Wow. Yeah. So, and she was telling me, you know, about how she felt like I was a part of that. 
So, I mean, I just thought I was sitting there, you know, asking questions and, and you know, trying to make the situation and, and the conversation as enjoyable for her as possible so she could be open with me. But, you know, I think if you do it in the right way, you, you, you learn a lot from a research perspective, but you can also give a lot to the people that you're, you're talking to at the same time. That's really neat. And it probably feels good for you, too. Like, you feel like you really made a difference in somebody's life. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, I think for all of us, sometimes on certain projects, you sort of think to yourself, am I just making fat cats fatter? So it's right. really good every now and then <laughs> to have those examples of things where you're actually improving something for someone. And that was definitely that's right. one of those yeah. moments. That's very cool. Let's talk about UX research. You said you're kind of, you're moving in or you're, you're focused a little bit more on UX research. Tell me your perspective on the difference between UX research and what we call qualitative research. I feel like those words get interchanged a lot. Yeah, they do. I guess I would say from my perspective, I think this is a contentious thing to say. And I think that some okay. people some people have already, you know, argued with me about this. But, you know, our perspective at MindSpark really is that all qualitative research is user research. I mean, UX is user research. And the point of user research is to empathize with the user, not just to necessarily just observe them, but to really kind of feel what they're feeling, to experience what they're experiencing so that you can take that on and go forth and, and do something useful with it. And, and I think that, you know, qualitative research is user research because that's what you're doing. You're exploring users. Is that the contentious part? Well, I think the contentious part is that, you know, there's been infographics floating around about, you know, what's the difference between, you know, MRX and UX and, and right. all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that, you know, for market research in general, so I'll just back this up to just say market research. There is a lot of difference between market research and, and user research. You know, you could have market studies and likelihood right. to purchase and all that kind of stuff. And that's not really user research. And I think that's where there is definitely clear lines to be drawn. I think qualitatively, we are sort of all going into qualitative research with, this, with the same aim and the same goal, which is to connect with users and understand them. I think if we keep thinking about UX and qualitative research as completely different entities, we're sort of, you know, creating separation where there doesn't need to be some because there's there's a lot of learning on both sides of things that overlap, basically, and can help practitioners on both sides kind of do a better job. Yeah, it's interesting because even in brand organizations, the quote-unquote UX research, let's say, with a product or service, mm -hmm. sits with a different group typically than the correct human sites or market research departments. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I would say that not only do they sit with different groups, but they also have different ways of approaching, you know, doing the research and getting feedback from from customers. And I'm not talking about methods, but if you're getting commissioned to do a qualitative research that falls for someone under the umbrella of just market research, a lot of times it's coming from someone with an insights manager title or a brand manager title, and they are looking at things like their objectives for quarterly sales figures or things like that, which, you know, everybody is looking at those objectives. Whereas somebody who is doing, you know, somebody who's a user researcher or a UX designer or something like that, they're sitting within product teams and their whole goal is to make sure that everything that is designed and created that the customer or the user will touch is designed with them in mind. Right. So you can see how kind of the mentality from both of those is different. Although actually you know, what we need to accomplish both of those things from a qualitative perspective anyway, is the same. I mean, what we need is understanding of the user and their situation. But one person is thinking of it as a, you know, how likely are they to eventually use this refrigerator? And another person is thinking of it as a, what are they already doing with their refrigerator? What are the existing needs? What are the pain points? And, and how can I solve those? Yeah, you make a really good point. I, I think that also in this time of 
digital, it's so hard to really connect with the consumer and build something that's relevant because there's so much noise in the marketplace as it relates to what the needs and wants are. So really being able to connect, break through the noise and building something that's relevant for consumers that they'll use is, is crucial. I think even more crucial because there's just so much noise. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it's it's that same like adage that we hear, even not research related. People are talking about the fact that social media, for example, is so prevalent. Everybody is connected to you know the world so easily now via a Facebook account or some other kind of social media network. And yet at the same time, we're so much more disconnected than we've ever been. And that's actually, you know, there's tons of stuff out there about, you know, what can classic or traditional FMCG companies learn from tech startups or, or things like that. From my perspective, the biggest thing is, you know, the tech or the software companies are fully aware that if they produce a brand or a product or a service where it's not helping their intended users, they're not going to go anywhere. Not all of them do a great job of addressing that. And that's why not all of them succeed. But I think this is why UX is growing to the extent that it is, is because those types of companies, the tech companies are really placing a lot of emphasis on user research, whereas the more classic and traditional companies are still thinking of it as sort of like classic MR. They're still thinking about qual versus quant. They're still panicking about what happens now that big data has come into the picture and what's going to happen next with AI and, and things like that. Instead of seeing it as a great, we have a collection of all of these tools at our disposal. This is amazing. Now, how can we use them you know, collectively to better understand the people that are important to us? I totally agree with you. You made an interesting point. You said you feel that we are less connected as, as people, even though we're so connected digitally. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think people sort of feel that. It's sort of like you can see into someone's life. You get to see a little bit about what someone decides to tell you about how their life is going, which is not necessarily the truth. So you see sort of like the, the filtered version. So you see the, what is it called? The happiness highlight reel of someone's life, which isn't necessarily real. And I think, you know, the same can be said even, you know, for research in general. It's if you don't dig into, you know, actually sitting down with people next to them and, and sort of following through them in their journey, you may end up with a happiness highlight reel of the people that you're after because it's easier than ever before to just have a look at what people are doing. But it's not really easy to understand all of the emotions and all of the different elements that go into why a behavior has occurred, why it's stopped occurring, why it's a repeat behavior, or you know any of those things. So I think it's where research has a huge potential and a huge opportunity to make a big difference for not just for businesses, but for people. If businesses decide that they want to overcome this barrier of disconnection that exists and make you know really concerted effort to get to know the people that they serve, I think that, you know, a lot of things can be moved forward in a lot of really healthy and productive ways. I completely agree with you. I, I think it's interesting, though, like, even as just people, right? I think a lot of people agree, like social media is just, it has its pluses, and it has its minuses. Mm. And sometimes it's just so hard to think about and, and then act differently. Right. We all kind of know it. We all know that we're not putting, you know, the tough stuff on social media, because fear of judgment, but yet we're kind of still feeding this notion of the highlight reel. Yeah. And I always ask myself, like, why do I do this? And I don't really have any clear answer, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it feels probably for a lot of people like there's no right answer. So it's like, yeah, if you don't put the hard stuff on, on Facebook, for some people, for, for sure, it's fear of judgment. But for other people, right. then 
they think, oh, well, I'm doing this just for attention or someone's going to think I'm just doing this for attention when they share, when they're vulnerable. That's also sort of like the buzzword. So I think empathy was the buzzword of the last two years and it's sort of fading down now and it's vulnerability is the new one. (laughs) I mean, which is also, again, relevant to our work, but also on a personal level, sort of people are going, yeah, okay, well, there's this new checklist. There's all these TED Talks now about vulnerability. So I guess that's the thing that I need to be doing. Um, There's all these (laughs) quotes circulating around the internet. Okay, so how can I be vulnerable? So I'm going to put on Facebook today that I had a really shitty day and then either they do it and a lot of times... I don't know. I think it's mixed reactions that we end up seeing, but it's one of those things where it doesn't seem to be a habit that's sort of easy to form. You do it once or twice and then you're sort of like, okay, well, I'm done airing my dirty laundry. Right. I think the problem is that there's this weird... It's like social media, you feel like you know those people, but it's also not yet intimate enough to share some of the hard stuff that you're going through. So yeah. it's, I think it's difficult for us in this day and age where we're so technologically connected to determine what level of intimacy should we be exercising on the internet. I completely agree with you. I, and I think it's sometimes a little bit of a false security to say, yeah, these people are my friends, but truly you know, what is friendship? Yeah. And how deep can you go in a platform where it can be so widely seen, your content? Yeah. But at the same time, it's an incredibly useful tool. At the same time, it it brings people together who are isolated. It helps spread information that not going to lie. And this is me being vulnerable. So now your listeners can judge me for my ignorance. I literally did not know about this whole the Amazon is on fire thing. And so I saw it on Facebook. I didn't know. Well, I think partly, I'll be vulnerable, is that I kind of checked out of the news because I just can't it anymore. Yes, totally. I can't do it either. And I actually resubscribed to a print newspaper. Wow. So then I can control when I read the news instead of it popping up every five minutes saying, you know, this emergency and this this terrible thing's happening. And I don't know. I'm going to try it. Let's see if it works. Because digitally, when it keeps showing up. I feel like I become numb to it. And then I completely go the other direction and ignore it totally. Yeah, you'll have to keep us posted on on how it goes. Because doesn't it feel like everything is a catastrophe right now? And like, also, maybe it is. (laughs) Maybe, you know, maybe we are sitting in in a burning room and we're just going, okay, it's the third time today I've heard about the fire. (laughs) I know. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. It was great. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.